Okay, Acts 19, 21 through 41 today. Let's pray. By your word, our Lord, the heavens were made. By your breath, all the hosts of heaven were created. By the same word, you brought us to new life. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and you made us alive by your holy word. You sustain the universe by the word of your power, and will you now sustain us by your very same word? We ask in Christ's name, amen. Please stand for the reading of God's word, if you're able. Acts 19, 21 through 41. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent to Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made without with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and another, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesus is temple keeper of the great Artemis and the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. And therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have, if, if they have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. 
for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. At this point in the missionary journey, Paul's second missionary journey, he spent at least two years in Ephesus, two fruitful years. Uh, He had been reasoning in the hall of Tyrannus and he'd been doing God had been doing mighty miracles through him. And the word was going out into Asia. Uh, But the spirit or his spirit in verse 21, um, it's a bit ambiguous there, was moving him along to his next calling to Jerusalem via Macedonia and Achaia. And then ultimately his desire was to go to Rome. And we know from Romans 15 that Paul's mission here is actually to bring uh, aid to the saints in Jerusalem. And then he's going to head. He wants to head to Rome. And ultimately his hope is to arrive in Spain. Um, so he, he's going to move on to the next calling. So he sends his companions on their way ahead of him into Macedonia. And then the lid comes off in Ephesus. It says there's no little disturbance about the way. This is a, an amazing story, an interesting story. But what really is the point of this story? Why is it here? Luke is not a person given to rambling he, do, he doesn't just share stories for the sake of interest. He's always he, he has a purpose in everything he writes. And so what is the purpose of this story? The theme of Acts, as we know, is the victory of the word. The word is accomplishing its purpose. It's going forth. It keeps winning wherever it goes. And thus King Jesus is reigning on his throne, spreading his kingdom, radiating from Jerusalem out into the world. Uh, but there are several sub-themes in Acts that uh, fit into the main theme. Several of them are here present in this text. Uh, remember, this is essentially uh, an apologetic book written to excellent Theophilus. Quite possibly, he was a high-ranking official, and uh, so and, and Luke wrote to him so that he may have confidence about the things about which he had been taught about Christianity. And here's a question that will come up for any uh, fledgling movement or sect, particularly in the Roman world and particularly perhaps in the mind of a high ranking official is, is this sect going to cause problems? Is Christianity a threat to the peace and well-being of society? And the answer is yes, but no, not really. This may or may not be our first apologetic concern, but it really was important in the first and second and third century church. Uh, Two of the most well-known apologists from the early church, Tertullian and Justin Martyr, focused heavily on this theme. And the book of Acts uh, consistently vindicates Christianity. Tertullian said basically on the one hand, yes, uh, we, we will not bow to the emperor. We will not call the emperor God. But on the other hand, Christians can never be justly uh, suspected of designs against the state. 
is the way he put it. And in fact, that if the state will pay attention, Christians are actually quite useful to the state. So this sort of apologetic vindication is, I think, the function of this passage. Um, so we will do well to pay attention as our own society seemingly grows more and more hostile to Christ and to his people. So three points then here. The first is that Christians are irritating. Christians are irritating. The second is that um Leave insurrection to the world. Or insurrection is the world's game. And then the third point is keep your nose clean. So first, Christians are irritating. Uh, The question here in this text is not, are Christians likable? Or are Christians going to fit in? The answer to those questions is no. No. But we are an irritating bunch. We are very annoying. Why? Well, John says in 1 John that the world hates us because we are not like them. The world is the way it is because it likes the way it is. It's in love with its own idolatry. I just imagine Demetrius down at the shop working on his idols and just seething, just stewing in anger over this Paul. This Paul, how can they let him teach like this in the hall of Tyrannus? It's, just, it's so non-Ephesian. Right? We're the, the city of Artemis. Here Paul is just preaching away and they're letting this happen. Artemis was at the heart of Ephesian culture. The temple of Artemis was the largest building in the Roman world. It was four times the size of the Parthenon. It had 127 60-foot columns. Uh, 36 of them were overlaid with gold. So this is a spectacular temple. Uh, Darrell Bach describes Artemis this way. Artemis, Ephesians, Ephesus's major goddess, was known as a goddess of fertility and a mistress of the wild beasts, a daughter of Zeus and Leto, and a sister of Apollo. In Roman religion, she was known as Diana. In this cult, she was a virgin who helped women with, in childbirth, a huntress with a bow and arrow, and the goddess of death. So this was the the goddess that was at the heart of Ephesian religion, uh, culture, and society. Uh, And not only in uh, Ephesus, but um, the the cult of Artemis actually took on a unique flavor. Artemis or Diana was a goddess in the the pantheon, but um, there was sort of this uh, Artemis of the Ephesians, as they say, and that she took on a unique uh, slant or... Um, character in Ephesus and apparently there have been 33 cult centers dedicated to this Ephesian Artemis uh, spread throughout the Mediterranean world that they've found of course Ephesus's temple is the largest uh, but the, the center of the, Ephesus was the center of the worship of Artemis and, and that made uh, Ephesus a center for people to come to, to uh, make journeys to. So it was really at the heart of the uh, economy as well as not just the religion. 
such that people were given to uh, wear miniature replicas of the temple of Artemis, um, sort of as personal mobile shrines to Artemis. And that's probably what uh, Demetrius was making, is these little mobile shrines in silver. Um, They found them in terracotta. They haven't found them in silver, at least not yet. But that's probably what they were making, is these little shrines. Now, if we remember from Paul's experience at Corinth, how he was delighted to find other Jews in the tent making trade um, because there were artisan guilds in which the artisans would would form these guilds, but they would um, make sacrifices to the patron deities of their of their trade. And of course, Jews and Christians couldn't participate in those guilds. Um, And so that's what we have here as well, that Demetrius is sort of gathers the guilds. Demetrius raises concerns on three levels with Paul, that is wealth, culture, and religion. He says he's concerned that Paul says that these gods we're we're making are not gods. He says these gods we make these gods as our livelihood, and truth be told, it's a good livelihood. Our wealth is in these these uh, images. And Paul, he's changing the culture. The tides are shifting and, and the current of popular opinion is changing and moving swiftly away from us. And Paul is casting aspersions on the great Artemis by saying gods made without hand, with hands are not gods at all. Verse 27, he says, There is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. So it's true here, to a point, Demetrius' point, um, that Paul has been an agitator. He's challenging the status quo. He's calling the people of Ephesus to turn away from false gods into the true God. And that's the first point. It's is very simple. Christianity is an irritant to the world. For at least two reasons. First, we oppose their idolatry. The human heart, as Calvin said, is a factory of idols, and we propose shutting down the plant and sending the workers home. The gospel message, the the very heart, it probes into deep into the human soul, a human soul that lies to itself, that knowingly suppresses the truth about God and pretends to be God. And and that's very uncomfortable for said soul. That soul would love nothing better than to remove that probe. So as Christians, if we're interacting with the world and we're not at some level making the world uncomfortable, we are either too retracted from the call to engage with the world or we're peddling a soft gospel. Second, the second reason why we're an irritant to the world is that the gospel changes things. I don't believe it's the mission of the church to redeem culture, but I do think it's an inevitable result that when the winds of revival blow, the hearts are changed and people come to know the living Christ, that their lives are going to change dramatically and they will have a positive impact on society. 
We saw this last week. Uh, the people were coming, confessing their sins, divulging their practices, burning their magical books of incantation. Demetrius sees this and the, he sees that the, the gravity of the Christian message is causing the tides to shift in the culture at Ephesus and it's very upsetting to him. So if we're engaging the world with the gospel as we're called to do, and if we're preaching the gospel as it's meant to be preached, we're going to upset folks. And if God grants and the winds of revival blow, we will uh, upset the apple cart in culture. The balance will be moved. The tides will change. And Christ will be, Christians will be viewed as, as instigators and irritants that need to be removed. So that's the first point, is that Christians are irritating. We must be careful, at least we abuse our calling and make that calling it that we make the world uncomfortable and we, we cross the line and dip into insurrection and thus giving the world just accusation. We'll read again the this, this story from 28. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. So some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Notice the contrast here. I believe this is very intentional on Luke's part. He does it over and over again in Acts. Paul preaches where he is welcomed, at the synagogue, in the, in the marketplace. But when he's no longer welcome, he moves on. Paul passionately but peaceably spends time in reason and persuasion, diligently reasoning with people who will listen in the hall of Tyrannus. He, he's not a, a revolutionary. He, he's certainly always direct. He does not hesitate to disrupt the status quo, but he's not a provocateur. He he is a preacher of the gospel, and it is the gospel itself that's disruptive, not his character. On the other hand, the other side of the contrast is Demetrius. Demetrius is a demagogue. He's clearly exploiting the situation. He's employing uh, uh, exaggeration and scare tactics, not to win hearts and minds to his cause, but to stir up an emotional response, uh, an effort at which he clearly succeeds. This is also a common theme in Acts, is the, the the roused rabble, the angry mob psychology, the irrational emotionalism, uh, the Sanhedrin could not withstand the apostles' teaching in chapter 5, and they were afraid of the crowd, so they secretly uh, flogged the apostles and tell them to stop it. 
Also, the Sanhedrin couldn't handle Stephen or Stephen and his, his scriptural defense that Jesus was the Christ. And so they ground their teeth and stone him. Or the Jewish women of the aristocracy in Pisidian Antioch were offended by Paul's biblical demonstration that Jesus was the Christ and the expected son of David, and they ran him out of town. And then at Lystra, when, when the people of Lystra were at once convinced that Paul and Barnabas were Zeus and Hermes until the Jews came down from Antioch and Iconium, and then they stoned them. And again, the Jews in Thessalonica, there was the rabble of the city that lived at the heart of the city, and they roused the rabble. This is emotional response to, to rouse the rabble and to riot. It's not reason. And now in our own text, the same thing is happening, that people don't even know why they're there. The crowd has been stirred into this riotous froth. And it's such a hairy situation, not hairy enough to keep Paul from wanting to go in there, because, you know, Paul. Um, but hairy enough for the disciples and, and the Asiarchs to ask him not to go in there. This, this is a bad situation. Don't do it, Paul. Incidentally, the Asiarchs are an upper upper class of civil rulers, and apparently Paul here has friends in high places, which shows the level to which the gospel has gone in Ephesus. And I, I think it's possible maybe even these Asiarchs were the ones who put a bug in the ear of the town clerk. But, uh, we can't know that for sure. Alexander the Jew also is in this passage. Uh, he's put forward to try to reason with the crowd, and probably what he wants to do is distance Judaism from Christianity and say, no, we're not that. Um, and also just calm the crowd because he does, he's worried about what's going to happen to Jews if this continues. The response of the crowd, again, is not reasonable, but for two hours... Can you imagine two hours of chanting? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I have to think that that, uh, Gaius and uh, the other guy, Aristarchus, were just thinking they were on on the edge of death at this point. Luke here is using irony, humor, and mockery to show the foolishness of the crowd and of Demetrius' cause. And in fact, the the very concern that people have about Christians is actually true of the Ephesians in this case. That's what he's showing, that, that no, Christians aren't insurrectionists. It's the Ephesians. It's the world. And it's actually a tactic we can use in our own apologetic. We may be accused of being immoral because we want to suppress the desires of people. But we can respond how wildly immoral that in our society, the name and in the name of individual desire, that we're encouraging young people to destroy their God-given bodies through surgery and chemicals. Right? We can push back that way, or we may be accused of being intolerant. But our society, in the name of tolerance, has a very strict code of ethics that if you don't follow, you get canceled or banned. Tertullian uses this apologetic in a section entitled, and imagine sending this 
this document to the Roman government during persecution. This section is entitled, um, That the Pagans are Guilty Both in Private and Public of the Same Crimes They Charge Upon uh, Christians. Well, the pagans falsely accuse Christians of killing and eating infants because they don't understand the Lord's Supper. Tertullian recounts the sacrifice of infants to Saturn in Roman North Africa and the slaughter and dismemberment of a man on the altars of Mercury in Gaul. He also says, I omit the human sacrifices at Diana's temple or Artemis um, in another city. And he goes on and he says, essentially, he, he goes on to recount um, all of the, the Romans put, putting Christians on the racks and demanding that they repent and treating them worse than criminals while not understanding what they believe. So Luke's point, I believe, in including this story is to say, actually, it's not the Christians who are the insurrectionists, but insurrection is the world's game. Which gives us two things to keep in mind. First, that we can be encouraged that we have the tools to tell the world to back off. We don't have to be intimidated by the world's accusations. You have a right to do as Luke does here, as Tertullian does, in a most winsome, uh, gentle, Christian way, with crystal clarity. Are you kidding me? You keep saying we hate people while you advocate the sacrifice of millions of little people on the altar of sexual freedom and individual autonomy. Are you kidding me? So we can be encouraged. We have the tools to push back and tell the world to back off. Second, while we preach the gospel, totally willing to disrupt the status quo, we must always remember that our weapons are not the world's weapons. This demagoguery, manipulation, emotionalism, violence, these are the weapons, not of Christian warfare, but of the world. Tertullian says in his apologetic, Thus it is with Christians we enter into battle when we are cited to your tribunals, there to combat for truth with the hazard of our life. To set up truth is our victory, and the uh, the victor's glory is to please his God, And the precious spoil of that victory is eternal life. And this life we certainly win by dying for it. Therefore, we conquer when we are killed and being killed are out of the reach to you and all other vexations forever. Paul similarly says in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh We have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So the first point was Christians are irritating, but we ought not to let that allow us to, to... fall over the cliff on the other side of saying, let's dip into insurrectionism. And finally, if we will be encouraged, uh, we must not be like the world 
if, if we're reactionary, if we're riotous or rude, that then the disturbance is not about the way, it's about us. And so if we're going to be encouraged by these things, we must also keep our nose clean, which is the third point. So we may only avail ourselves of, of Luke's apologetic method if we're not actually open to charges. And this is a theme that runs through Acts. Christianity is vindicated time and time again of being a threat to peace and civil order. And interestingly, it's vindicated time and time again by unbelievers. Gamaliel says, hold on, let's just see if this thing fizzles because we don't want to be found fighting against God. Or the Philippian council, after publicly beating and imprisoning Paul and Silas as Roman citizens are put to open shame and, and they have to publicly apologize and escort these men out of the city. Or Gallio, the proconsul of Corinth, tells the Jews that, that Paul and his friends are not doing anything wrong. They're not doing anything against the law. It's like Daniel, when the satraps could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. And now in our story, the town clerk of Ephesus in verse 35, um, Bach, Daryl Bach says that the town clerk was a keeper of records, a registrar, an accountant for the temple funds. He is the highest civic official in the city, operating much like a powerful city manager and serves the city's, as the city's liaison to Roman authorities. So this is a powerful man in the city of Ephesus. And the, the town clerk, to be clear, is not sympathetic to Christianity. In verse 35, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. Uh, the sacred stone is probably a meteorite. <laughs> that makes sense. And incidentally, uh, here again, consider the contrast between their foundational belief and that of Christianity. The difference between a falling stone from the sky or the resurrection from the dead. But the clerk's speech represents the common grace of God, giving wisdom to this, this man. He's able to reason and think objectively, which in all probability preserves the lives of Paul and his companions. And the clerk has four basic points. He's, firstly, he says, calm down. Artemis is not going anywhere. Is this Christianity thing a problem? Yes, but D Demetrius may have overstated the problem just a little bit. Again, archaeologists have found 33 shrines to Artemis all over the Mediterranean world. The, the uh, Artemis cult is not going anywhere anytime soon. So calm down. Second, the, these men, Paul and his friends, have not done anything illegal. In verse 37, for you brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemous of our goddess. That word sacrilegious in the Greek is literally a compound word that means temple robbery. Um, and essentially it was, uh, temple robbery was considered a crime, a capital offense. And that, but later on the term came to just mean sacrilege, that you were 
being disrespectful toward the temple. So these men are not are not going around spray painting mustaches on, on figures of Artemis, right? They're being reasonably respectful and not blasphemous. Verse 37 suggests that they were not even unnecessarily derogatory toward Artemis in their speech, that they were clear as day, God, gods made without hands or with hands are not gods. Jesus Christ is exclusively Lord of the universe, but they were apparently not doing anything the locals could rightly view as blasphemous toward Artemis. Third, if Demetrius and company disagree with his assessment, uh, there are legal channels to deal with that. He has recourse. There's pro-councils. And then fourth, uh, we are actually the ones about to be charged with rioting. The Roman government would put up with a lot, but not rioting. Verse 40, for we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. So the verdict here is in from an unbeliever. The purpose of Christianity is not insurrection or riot or discord in the Roman world. They are vindicated. And interesting, this helps me to get my head around it, that I've always wondered about this qualification for elders in 1 Timothy 3.7. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. That's not saying you, you have to be well liked by people who are unbelievers, but you can't be viewed as, as being a blasphemous or sacrilegious or disrespectful. I think that's the connection there. Similarly, Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 3 through 6, uh, 23 through 26, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So we must not stutter with the gospel. The gospel sword uh, must not be softened one point on the Rockwell hardness scale. But our conduct must be in accord with the gospel. Our speech must be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that we may know how to answer outsiders. Even as we follow in the footsteps of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll conclude with this, that in Christ we find all of this summed up in his life and his conduct. And we seek by his grace to exhibit his character in a a crooked and twisted generation. So first we see in Christ that uh, he was irritating. Irritating enough to make people want to kill him. Jesus was not afraid to speak the truth or to offend. He once called the Pharisees sons of the devil. So Jesus spoke with clarity and was willing to upset the status quo, willing to be an irritant in society. Second, he was, it was not him, but it was the unregenerate men who were corrupt and riotous. Jesus wasn't corrupt. It says in Mark that the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. 
The contrast there is that they were lying, manipulative, driven by emotion and fear, and ultimately to the point of committing the most unjust atrocity ever executed by men, the crucifixion of the Lord of glory. And third, Jesus was vindicated of any wrongdoing. Pilate himself said, I find no fault in him. And Pilate washed his hands of the matter and only in a cowardly act delivered him over for crucifixion because of fear of riot. So may we uh, take up this apologetic and may we learn daily more and more to emulate our Savior, standing resolute but also pure from corruption so that our enemies will be put to shame both now and in the day of judgment. Amen.